The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey guys, welcome back to Mama Mystery. My name is Kelly and I'm your host. And my name is Austin and I'm your co-host. And this is about to be the sickest episode ever of Mama Mystery because Kelly's sick. (laughs) She's getting over being sick, but she said, I got to put on for my people. I did. I mean, trust me, I would so much rather be in bed right now, but you know, I just feel this obligation now where I owe it to you people to give you what you want and what you want is true crime. got to give the people what they want. What you want is Mama Mystery and I'm here to hand it to you. Whoa. Yeah. Um, So anyway couple things um, before we get started. Some of you Patreons out there got your stickers this week, which is so exciting. And um, the stickers turned out so good. I love them. Um, I think what I'm going to start doing is kind of a more like aesthetic set of stickers each month. So it's not always just about true crime. Because if you have a Yeti full of true crime stickers, people might be like, "Mm." you're a murderer. She might be a little bit psycho. So I'm going to throw in some like <clears throat> cute little designs. Let me know what you think. Mama type designs. Yeah. Kelly could kill it with a mom blog because she's very relatable to other moms. If you're all moms, you would probably relate to Kelly pretty well. Yeah, probably. I, I think I'm pretty relatable. I'm pretty boring, honestly. I think you're not boring. We're all boring in our own rights, whatever the hell that means. Yeah, it's subjective. If you got your Patreon stuff, since we know a lot of you have... I hope you enjoyed There was just, I mean, uh, here's the deal. I'm a man of my word, and there was real blood (laughs) on the envelopes, and it's freaking creepy, and our whole kitchen was covered in it like a scene of the Kansas City Butcher. You in that episode. Wait until you see. Guys, if you didn't get the Patreon envelopes, I'm telling you, to be a Patreoner is an honor, (laughs) because Kelly cut me. Anyways, go ahead. I did not. I did not cut anybody. But he left little notes on every single envelope, just random stuff. Next to the real blood. Next to the... Real blood. blood. Real blood. The DNA juice is yes, what you call DNA it. Yes, DNA juice. I'm cool with that. But it was so funny because I took Jack to the post office with me and we got the stamps and you put the stamp on the upper right-hand corner. Left. That's... No, the stamp goes in the upper right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, right, right. Yikes. And um, that's where a lot of his notes were so i had to cover a lot of them with stamps sorry guys but you get what you get and you don't throw a fit so um today is episode 43 and we are talking about the murder of kirsten costas are you ready austin let's do this let's do this so where are we at what country what state we're in uh california around uh the 80s 84 i believe the actual year i'll have to scroll through and see what i wrote down but yeah so we're in cali okay this is an important time because I want you to keep this in mind. This is when, like, I feel like crime 
um, and especially like forensic science was all coming, it was like all coming together. So there was a lot of crime, but forensic science wasn't where it is today, obviously. So it was a lot slower to get things solved. We just didn't have like this, the type of technology. We didn't even have cell phones or maybe there were cell phones, but they weren't like easily ac- accessible to teenagers. Mm-hmm. So I just want you to keep I don't think there were cell phones in the eighties. Were there? I don't even know. No, 100% there wasn't because I had an uncle that had a navigator in like 2000 and it had a phone in the middle console. In 2000? Maybe it was 90. No, it was 98. It was 98 navigator. Yeah. And it had a phone in the middle console. Whoa. That blows my mind. Yeah. In 1980s, babe, there was not phones. Cell phones. Cell phones. No cell phones in the 80s. I'm Googling it right now, too. Yeah, I mean, I know there was, like, phones and briefcases. But the point is, like, they just weren't as easily accessible, so. Cell phones came out in, oh, the iPhone came out in 2007. But according to others' searches, I can't really get a definite answer. I'm trying to do this fast for everybody. It says in the late 70s to 1990, there were several milestones in the history of the telephone, yet very few major turning points. They were all like massive blocks and stuff. Like they look like desktop computers. Mm-hmm. It says that ni- or in eighty, in the late eighties, eighty seven, the first self, the first text message was sent. But the thing looks like a, a desktop computer. Weird. Yeah, crazy. Anyway, so that just kind of gives you an idea of like the time frame we're in. But um, Kirsten Costas, she was born July twenty third, nineteen sixty eight, to parents Arthur and Barrett Costas. And grew up in a small town called Orinda, California. So Orinda is just east of Berkeley. And in 2012, Forbes voted Orinda the second friendliest town in America. So you can imagine, I mean, that was in 2012. The 80s, obviously, that was a few decades prior. But you can imagine this is a pretty sweet, safe place to live. So Kirsten had a brother, Peter. And growing up, Kirsten was very smart, very pretty, Popular among her classmates, she was known as being witty, confident, outgoing, and a little sarcastic. She just told it like it was. She um, was very, like, cut and dry, and she wasn't one to, like, sugarcoat. Um, She was a member of the varsity swim team in high school. She was also on the cheerleading squad, as well as the soccer team and the softball team. So, very busy girl. Busy chick. Yeah, busy and very popular. So... Her high school was called Miramonte High School, and this was a school full of kids whose parents were well-established, very successful people. So this success and inevitable pressure trickled down to the kids, and they became very competitive as well. Social status was incredibly important, and like many schools, or at least the ones you see in movies, but there was always like a core group of girls who were friends, and were all super pretty, popular girls. I do feel like that's common. There was a mm-hmm. group in my school. Um, but at Miramonte High School, this group of girls was called the Bob-O-Links. So the Bob-O-Links, and they were also called, like, the Bobbies for short. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know where that term comes from. Bob-O-Links. Bob-O-Links. Doesn't make any sense to me. Whatever. Same. Weird. But anyway, um, girls had to be invited to join this group. And um, one of the boys in the school described this group as being just full of stuck-up girls, and that it was mostly just about your social status. The Bobolinks were the prettiest, the richest, and came from the most affluent families, and Kirsten was in this group. So 
In mid-June, Kirsten's house received a phone call to which her mother answered. And on the line was someone inviting um, Kirsten to an initiation dinner for the new Bobolinks. And this person told Kirsten's mom that it was a super secret dinner and she would be picked up at about 8.30 that following Saturday. So the following Saturday, June 23rd, 1984, Kirsten gets picked up by a friend to go to this dinner. And then when she returned later that evening, one of her neighbors, Arthur Hillman, gets a knock on his door. And when he opens the door, he sees Kirsten collapsed, bleeding, and struggling to breathe. So he yells for his son to call 911 and tries asking her what happened, but all she can get out is that she couldn't breathe. So Kirsten was taken to the hospital, and by 11 o'clock that night, she was pronounced dead from a stab wound that bisected a major artery to her heart. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Can you imagine a freaking... Evening, night, whatever. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes and knocks on your door, and they're your neighbor, and they're bleeding. And... Yeah, it's a young girl. She was only fifteen. Oh my gosh, that's scary. Yeah, super scary, especially in a town that's pretty quiet. Everybody knows each other. Everyone's well established, and they're probably all just like, "What the hell?" I mean, it probably took everyone by surprise. That's. Cr- I don't think it's normal anywhere. No. Yeah. No. Definitely not. Yeah. But I mean, especially in this really quiet, like, well-to-do town, mm-hmm. it just was so unexpected. So the town of Arinda was totally shocked by this. Things like this just didn't happen there. So hundreds of people came to her funeral. Her classmates were completely devastated, and everyone was kind of just on edge, thinking like, "Where is is the person that did this? Who did this?" Like, mm-hmm. everyone's just on edge. So investigators questioned the students at Miramonte High School, and one girl came under a cloud of suspicion. Her name was Nancy Kane, and at one point, her and Kirsten were friends, but they ended up having a falling out, and they were even like in the same friend group. I don't think Nancy was ever part of the Bobolinks, but I think they were still in like the popular girl group. But at one point, they had a falling out, and Nancy became a part of the goth crowd. And she was really into, like, smoking and drinking and just, like, getting into trouble. She even was interviewed once and said that, like, she just looked for trouble. So, um... All over the place. Hormones. Yeah. yeah. Kirsten was known to make jabs at Nancy for um, her distaste for like her style. I mean, they, they didn't like each other and it was very well known among all of the students. So when rumors really swirled out of control, Nancy's mom, um, transferred her to another school and she also would not allow Nancy to take a lie detector test. So by not allowing her to take that test and then moving her to another school made everyone believe that she was guilty. But many of the Arinda students refused well, and residents refused to believe that it could possibly be another student at this really well-to-do school where everyone comes from a nice family. They were sure that it had to be like an outsider or drifter of some sort. So Arinda police got the FBI involved and asked them to create a profile on who they think was likely to have killed Kirsten. And in October, they completed their profile. And I think this is so interesting because... The FBI creates their profile based on hundreds of thousands of hours of interviewing criminals and like studying criminals and how they work and the details of the case. So for for just one example, one random example, the fact that Kirsten was stabbed like 
indicates or would suggest that she was killed by somebody who knew her well because it's such a personal attack. I've heard you talk about stuff like this before, like psychology behind the way they're killed and stuff. Yeah, so in this example, somebody being stabbed, it's a very personal attack because you have to get really close to them. Like the Lulu murder. Yeah, like that. But, I mean, that's almost like a crime of passion. Like, Mm -hmm. when it's overdone. Right, but I'm just saying, like, there's, like, these little psychology indicators. Yeah, for sure. But in this particular case, um, you know, the fact that she was stabbed, like, someone has to get close to the victim. You have to use an amount of force. You have to, like, follow through with that force. It just just indicates, like, a personal vendetta, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, with the gun, sometimes it can be more random because all it takes is the pulling of a trigger. It's just a lot less. And it also depends on how close you are, which is determined by blood splatter, mm-hmm. gun velocity, all Gosh, that stuff. Gosh, you're crime freak. It's crazy. It, like, the details are crazy that go into this stuff. But the FBI believed that whoever killed Christ, or Kirsten was probably a girl of the same age and that Kirsten would have known her. In other words, they believed that this was a personal attack, not from an outsider or a drifter. So Kirsten's parents also hired a private investigator to find their daughter's killer. So at this point, investigators are interviewing the students, trying to get an idea of who could have had it out for Kirsten and why. And the problem is that Kirsten wasn't always like the nicest girl. So I think it would be hard to kind of pinpoint you know, who would, if you've ever seen the movie Mean Girls, it's kind of like who would have killed Regina George? Well, maybe a few people would have had it out for her. Maybe a couple hundred in the school. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't mean to say that to like tarnish her memory, but in a case like this, when you just are looking at it kind of cut and dry, it's like, well, she wasn't super nice to a lot of people. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it probably was kind of hard to narrow it down. And I'm not saying she deserved to die because she was mean, But, I mean, it just makes it a little harder. Right. So um, they believed it was someone her age. At this point, they're interviewing the students and close friends of hers. And that's when the private investigator that the Costas hired finally catches a break in the case. So one of Kristen's friends and fellow Bobolink told her... What is this Bobolink thing? It's so weird. I know. It's weird. Told investigators that she was babysitting on the night of the attack, and she'd even told her parents that. But when the PI called the family that she said she was babysitting for, they told him that she was never there, that she hadn't babysat for like a year. Dun dun dun. So he takes this information to the detectives, and this girl was a girl named um, Bernadette Prady. So Bernadette Prady, like I said, also a member of the Bobolinks, she came from a good family. She had five siblings. Her parents were devout Catholics, and her dad was a retired public works officer, and her mom was a homemaker. So oddly enough, since she was in this elite club, she was actually not wealthy, and her family wasn't wealthy. I mean, their job descriptions, they have five siblings, like, you know, I would imagine they're a little strapped. And I've also read that they they were unable to really afford the lifestyle they were trying to portray, which I feel like so many people get themselves in that type of position, but Mm -hmm. that's neither here nor there. Um, She desperately wanted that life. And of all people, she really envied Kirsten. Oops, knocked over my 36 ounces of tea. Go ahead. (laughs) God, I don't know when we're going to learn. Probably never. So I don't even know what I said. Um, Oh, yeah. We were talking before I got rudely interrupted by your tea spill about 
Bernadette Brody being very envious of Kirsten, even though she wasn't really the nicest girl, but she really wanted what Kirsten had. She wanted the popularity, the style, the confidence, the accolades, everything. The money. She wanted that life. So she tried out for cheerleading, but she didn't make the squad. She wanted to be on the yearbook committee, but she was never voted in. And then on a ski trip with all of her friends, while, other, while all the other girls had their trips paid for by their parents, Bernadette worked her ass off to save up the money to go, and she wore secondhand ski clothes, borrowed skis and boots from someone else, while everyone else, including Kristen, or Kirsten, Kirsten, had brand new trendy ski clothes and skis. And she par- probably didn't want to be named Bernadette either. Bernadette is not a bad name. Go ahead. (laughs) Anyway, so apparently on this trip, Kirsten made a comment to Bernadette calling her out for her attire, which really hurt Bernadette's feelings, of course. Pretty effed up. Yeah, but this only made Bernadette's desperation for approval grow even deeper. So on the night of June 23rd, it was Bernadette who picked up Kirsten to go to this Baba Link's dinner. And when Kirsten got into the car, she noticed that Bernadette was wearing a tracksuit, which threw her off because um, Baba Links would never wear something like that to a dinner. I'm getting such mean girl vibes. Like on Wednesdays, we wear pink, and you're not you're not ever allowed to wear sweatpants. Like this is what it's really reminding me. Pretty messed up. Anyway, so Bernadette admits to Kirsten that she's actually taken her to a party, and that she just told Kirsten's parents that so that they wouldn't know any better. So Kirsten also happened to notice an 18-inch knife in Bernadette's car. But Bernadette explained that it belonged to her sister and that she kept it in there to cut her fruits and vegetables. I, yeah. I got a machete in the backseat of my truck. I use it to cut out to cut bananas up. Yeah, I just use it because I don't like the stems on my strawberries. What the Seems heck? a little unnecessary, a little excessive. 18 inches. That's 18 a pretty big-ass bl- knife. An 18-inch blade to cut strawberries? Uh, that's like cutting tomahawk ribeye-style knife. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's really <clears throat> unnecessary. It's a butcher knife. So um, either way, Kirsten seemed satisfied with that answer. She was just like, okay, weirdo, that's fine. And then according to Bernadette, they stopped in a church parking lot on the way to the party so that Kirsten could smoke some weed. She said that they sat there for about 40 minutes and that Kirsten offered her some, but she declined, which upset Kirsten for some reason, which that one I kind of find hard to believe because if Bernadette wanted everything Kirsten had, why would she decline something Kirsten was doing and offering her? Like that just seems kind of off to me. Maybe so she could stay sober and stab her. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe she just lied about it. Maybe she just lied it to lied to like, you know, make up this whole story. Who knows? To sound or to sound better to everybody. Like, yeah. Oh, I to like down tarnish Kirsten to be like she did drugs, yeah. but I didn't. Yeah. I mean, who knows? But anyway, apparently they started arguing, and then it came out that this party that Bernadette was taking her to was actually a party that Bernadette had heard about, but wasn't actually invited to. So Kirsten refused to go to this party with her, which upset Bernadette. And in my opinion, if this is true, I believe Bernadette was probably using Kirsten to social climb and thought that maybe by bringing her to a party, it would make her look cooler and that maybe if the party was fun, it would make Kirsten like her more. So to see this plan start to crumble maybe made Bernadette break down. And Bernadette said that she asked Kirsten why she was always so mean to her, why she didn't like her, why she wouldn't be her friend. To which Kirsten found pathetic and rolled her eyes before she got out of the car. Gosh. Not very compassionate. 
I mean, if, if this is true, okay, I, we have to say that with like everything because you really just never know. But, um, if that's true, I mean, I can kind of believe it. Like it sounds believable. It's a believable story. Mm -hmm. I do think the knife being in the car is like an odd, you know, throw in, but apparently Bernadette's sister did confirm this. The, you know, that she did keep a knife in her car and she used it for her veggies. I just think it's so unnecessary. It's a huge-ass yeah. knife. It would make a lot more sense if it was, like, a smaller smaller knife. It would make a lot more sense if all of this was true, but Bernadette had the knife just in case she got pissed. <laughs> yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, let's just be honest. So... Kirsten walked to the home of Alexander and Mary Jane Arnold, and she told the couple that she was out with a friend, but that the friend got weird on her, and she asked the couple if she could use their phone to call her parents, but her parents didn't answer since they were out at that time. So Mr. Arnold offered to drive her her home, which he did, and he recalled that Kirsten was very calm on the ride to her house, that she talked about her school activities and her social life and seemed upbeat. And that if there was anything really wrong, she really didn't show it. So when they got to Kirsten's house, Mr. Arnold watched Kirsten walk up to her house. But then he saw someone run up to Kirsten, heard an altercation, saw Kirsten fall to the ground, and he assumed it was just a fist fight. So when this person ran back to their car to take off, he tried to follow them, but he had no idea Kirsten was actually suffering from a stab wound. So Bernadette got home around 10 o'clock that night, took a late walk with her mother, and when she heard that Kirsten died, she was devastated. She was even at her funeral, was bawling along with everyone else. So when she was brought in for questioning on December 9th, the investigators confronted her with the FBI profile, asking her if it sounded like anyone, anyone that she knew, and she replied, me. So, what? Yeah, six months later, too. That's how long it took them to figure out who She said it sounded like me? Mm-hmm. So they didn't take her in right then, and it wasn't really a confession. She was just agreeing, like, yeah, it sounds like me. But um, they didn't have anything else to go on, like no physical evidence, really. So they let her go. Bernadette went home and wrote her parents a letter in which she confessed to killing Kirsten that night. She begged them to forgive her, to still love her. She gave her mom the letter the next morning and asked her to open it after she left for school. And when her mom read the letter, she immediately went to the school, picked up Bernadette, and took her to the police station, where she admitted that she always felt inferior to Kirsten and felt embarrassed by her living situation in comparison to all the affluent kids that she went to school with. So the prosecution tried to show that Bernadette premeditated the whole murder by creating a ruse for Kirsten's parents and also bringing along that huge knife. But the judge found her guilty because this was not um, a jury case. So there was no jury here. What decides if something's a jury case? It's okay if you don't know, Kelly. I don't know. I'm going to Google it while you keep talking. I don't know. That's a really good question. Yeah, Google it while I read the rest. But um, yeah, I was going to say I thought I knew, but and I feel like maybe I do know somewhere in my brain, but yeah, you'll definitely have to remind me. Um, but anyway, found her guilty of second-degree murder, and she was sentenced to nine years in prison at the age of 16. Damn. Yeah. 
Just nine years for taking someone's life. It's like, yeah, it's like, doesn't seem like very big of a punishment. No, not at all. See you in a decade? Less than that. So she was sent to the California Youth Authority where she got her GED. She was eventually released on parole for good behavior. And she was 23 years old when she was released. Hmm. So she left California. She changed her name, eventually got married, and apparently has had children. Meanwhile, Kirsten's family moved to Alaska and then Hawaii. They begged for Bernadette not to get released. So you can imagine their disappointment and distrust in the legal system when their daughter's killer was released after only serving seven years. Jeez. She could be listening to this right now. That's always what I go to, is somebody could be listening to it right now. Yeah. So in 1994, there was a made-for-TV movie called A Friend to Die For, starring Kelly Martin and Tori Spelling. And I think there was another one called Death of a Cheerleader. And it was based on this story. And it depicted Kirsten as your typical tall, blonde, popular cheerleader mean girl. And Bernadette as, like, the unassuming brunette, meek, wannabe popular girl. And And a lot of people had a problem with that because it was kind of, like, victim-blaming, you know, this girl's freaking alive, and there's move or uh, alive and free, and there's movies reflecting I've even read her. That she became a nurse, and I'm like, what? How? Like I she, don't know what that's she could true. be watching the movies, listening to this podcast, oh, and she's just out she's there. Watched the movies I mean, for how sure. How could you not? Human nature, you're going to watch the movie. I would think so, but I mean, I feel bad for uh, Kirsten's family because sure. they lost their daughter and sister so suddenly and unexpectedly and so violently Mm -hmm. that for her to only serve seven years, it's just like, what, how, on what planet? I mean, she was not 16 yet. Um, and I think Bernadette was about to turn 16 too, if she wasn't already. And so, I mean, I know she was technically like a juvenile. She would not have been tried as an adult. I'm, I'm assuming. So, it just still just seems so unfair. It's almost like, man, if you're going to commit crimes, do it when you're a kid. <laughs> Jeez, that's crazy. I just Googled this. Okay, it's kind of confusing. It says, I said, what kind of trials have juries? There are two types of judicial proceedings in which the federal courts that use juries. Criminal trial, an individual is accused of committing a crime that is considered against society as a whole. Or civil trial. Litigants seek remedies for private wrongs that don't necessarily have broader social impact. Yeah, but see, that doesn't make sense because the way I understand that is like if there's a civil case, that's like me against you. But in a public case, it's like the state of California versus Bernadette Prati. Yeah, I don't understand. And in that case, that would require a jury because that affects the public. It's the state. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe if one of you guys know, um, you could like message our page so we can share it and I can learn something. Because when I saw that, I honestly I've been sick, so I've been tired and I haven't been as like eager to seek information. <laughs> I mean, there wasn't a whole lot on this case, but usually if I don't understand something, I'll look it up. Um, and it you know, also makes fun of me because I'll be like, "Why do windmills exist?" And I'll just Google it and learn everything about windmills. Kelly it's so learning. random. I like it. She loves learning. But this is one of those things where I was just like, well, sure, whatever. Sounds fine. And I just typed it. So I'm really sorry, guys. <laughs> I really dropped the ball on this true crime podcast. But uh, I think it was a good one. Well, thank you. I do appreciate that. So I don't know. What do you think? How do you feel about her serving seven years? I think that, that was way light. I mean, I feel like here's the deal. The whole entire case 
I feel like this is something that has the potential to have in every school in America, every school in the world every day. I mean, and it's like, there's a level of, it's sad that the bullying, the lack of fitting in, the social pressure Mm -hmm. that exists in the world, um, doesn't mean you just go around killing people. No. No, I mean, I had some bullies in high school and like, sure, yeah, I wish I could do stuff to them, but it was never killing them. I was more like, I just want to punch them in the face or something like that. Right on. Well, But I never would have, like, I just never would have gotten to that point. I just, I can't see myself getting to the points. I don't know. It is weird. I think that, but, but however, she did go and kill her and to get seven years and like, yeah, I feel bad for that family and for like to have to know that your son or daughter is dead and now there's movies and everything else going on in the world and that person's just out enjoying life, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't feel like justice has been served. Exactly. The fact that she got to live her life and Kirsten never did. She got to go on and experience things that Kirsten never got to experience. Mm -hmm. That's a real shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and whether she was a child or not and she did it in a crime of passion and her frontal lobe isn't completely developed because she's immature and she's still a kid... You know, it just sucks. It just sucks. There's no. It's a really hard thing to like judge. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not the judge of that. Yeah. I'm just a freaking podcast sidekick. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. If you get bullied, I mean, it sucks, but you don't got to go out killing people. Just Just get your revenge by being super successful. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Anyway. That is our episode for today. I hope you guys have a fabulous weekend. We will be back on Monday, and hopefully I'll be nice and well, so we'll have a lively, energetic episode for you guys. Thanks to all the Patreons. Thanks for all the shares. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Mama Mystery out. Bye.